research over the past 20 years has increasingly focused on dating violence as a public health crisis. So what are all the implications of physical and mental health as these adolescents become adults? That's a really important question. And there are, there are so many, it's hard to list all of them. So from like the physical health side of things, obviously dating violence is, is so, well, I mean, not necessarily obviously, but in, <laughs> in my work, I look at healthy relationships. So to me, dating violence and negative sexual health consequences are really intertwined. You can't really separate them because they like they both occur in the context of your relationships with the people that you're dating. So if there's violence or coercion or aggression going on in your relationship, that's going to impact your likelihood of using birth control, using condoms, and then that's going to impact your risk of contracting sexually transmitted infections, STIs or STDs, including HIV, that's going to impact your risk of having unintended pregnancies or for young moms who I work with having a rapid repeat pregnancy. So having another baby within 18 months of the first one, which we know is not associated with the best outcomes in terms of children's health, children's education, the socioeconomic status of the family, all kinds of things. So those are some of the big, the big health ones, obviously, like that are more immediate, but also substance use is associated with dating violence. So it's a really interesting relationship and we need a lot more research on this because substance use can increase your risk of perpetrating dating violence or being the victim of dating violence, because obviously some substances like alcohol, right, or like, you know, any kind of stimulant are going to, you know, sometimes make people more inclined to be more impulsive and more violent, make more impulsive decisions, things like that. But also a lot of people may use substances to cope with dating violence experiences. So it can be kind of tricky to tease that apart in research. And we need to understand more about that cycle. So often people use substances to cope with things like adverse childhood experiences from your previous example, or from the not great relationship that they're in or the violence or coercion they're experiencing in their current relationship. So they might drink more um, or use more marijuana or use whatever substance it is to cope with the situation that they're in. And then that's associated with sexual risk and sexual health consequences and also mental health consequences. So depression is a really big one as well. So adolescent, all adolescents who are involved in dating violence are at a higher risk of depression, but then it's also important to tease apart. Could those feelings of depression make you more at risk of perpetrating dating violence as well? So if you feel like lonely and unloved and you're ruminating or thinking a lot about how your partner is out doing something you don't know what they're doing, and then you're struggling to regulate your emotions and your anger, then you might be more likely to lash out at them next time you see them. So there's all kinds of health consequences, both from a behavioral health and a physical health perspective. And obviously injuries. I mean, that's the other the other big one for dating violence. Yes, it's injuries, yeah. You know, adolescent girls who you know, identify as members of underrepresented racial or ethnic minority groups face increased risks for both dating violence and sexual risk behaviors. Also, the social determinants of women's health, particularly of young women from racial, ethnic, and sexual minority groups are best approached really from an intersectional social 
ecological, and minority stress-informed perspective. How about minority adolescents and adolescents who identify with different sexual orientation? You talked about this before, but also adolescents with disabilities or teen mothers. So I really like to approach all of my research and clinical work with trying to use that intersectional lens, which really means understanding how individuals' different identities aren't just sort of like separate categories. They really work together to influence our lived experiences, right? So like, I'm not just only white, I'm also a woman and my parents are immigrants. So those things all intersect in terms of how I view the world and my relationship to it and the stressors that I experience. So for example, for the young moms that I work with, they're predominantly racial and ethnic minoritized members of predominantly racial and ethnic minoritized groups. And many of them grew up in poverty in an urban environment or a rural environment here in New Jersey. We also have higher rates of um, adolescent pregnancy in rural environments. They're young and their mothers, which is an interesting intersecting identity where they often face a lot of stigma in healthcare settings. That's actually another study that I'm just wrapping up that my team's been doing recently is that young moms say that when they go see the doctor, including in pediatrics for their children's well visits and in OBGYN, often they'll get, you know, looks from people like, oh my gosh, like you're pregnant or, you know, you're pregnant again, like you're too young to be a mom. And that really impacts how they see themselves and the decisions that they make, right? So just some examples of how identities might intersect and shape our experiences and worldview. And that's really important for minority stress theory as well, because if, you know, society has minoritized your group, right? If you're, if the, your identity causes you to have a lot more stress on a chronic daily basis because of the discrimination that you experience, then that's a stressor. That's a real stressor that you're going to be experiencing every day whether you're you know, acutely aware of it on a daily basis or not, just wondering, is that person at the coffee shop treating me this way because of this aspect of my identity or that aspect of my identity? Am I going to get the same healthcare experience that somebody with a different skin color or who speaks a different language might when they go to the doctor? Like Those are really stressful things and that can impact your ability to regulate your emotions. That can impact your coping strategies like using substances, for example, or your relationships with your partners. And so that's one of the sort of main like systemic reasons why folks who identify as members of minoritized groups might be at greater risk for dating violence and sexual risk. And then you also mentioned like LGBTQIA adolescents. Um, so that's there's some really interesting research suggesting, for example, that adolescent girls who identify as lesbian or bisexual are actually more likely to have unintended pregnancies than their heterosexual peers, which like seems counterintuitive. But one of the reasons for that might be that if you see yourself as I'm somebody who has sex with other girls or women, I might be less prepared if I do end up in a situation where I'm having sex with a boy or a man. I may not have condoms. I may not be taking birth control because that's not how I see myself. And because of that minority stress theory as well and experiencing harassment, stigma, discrimination every day in the halls of your school, that's going to impact your ability to have healthy relationships, especially if your partner's experiencing that same stress every day as well. 
So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot, a lot going on here in terms of we could, we could go on for the entire next hour about how uh, different intersecting identities might impact risk for dating violence and, and sexual risk. But those are just a few examples and disabilities as well in terms of stigma and discrimination and disabilities can be visible or invisible, right? So somebody might have ADHD and that impacts their decision-making and their impulsivity and their emotion regulation, or they may have a reading disability and they may be more dependent on their partner for accessing services and things like that if they really struggle to read. And so that can create power dynamics, or maybe there's a visible physical disability that can impact how you see yourself and how your partner sees you as well. We're talking to Dr. Meredith Jones, a clinical psychologist who uh, she's written this powerful, powerful paper on dating violence in adolescence. You know, serious physical and sexual dating violence victimization has been shown to be stable over the course of adolescence. How important is early screening and prevention for this condition? What can be done? And who should be involved in prevention, screening, and intervention for teen dating, violence, and sexual risk? It is such an important question. And um, I think that everybody who interacts with adolescents is really on kind of the front lines for screening and prevention. It is so, so important. And often adolescents don't recognize what they're experiencing in their relationships as dating violence per se, just like they may not label some sexual coercion or sexual violence they experienced as those things or as rape, right? So it's really important to ask open-ended questions and meet adolescents where they're at and try to understand their lives and relationships in the limited time you have and say, oh, tell me, you know, do you have a partner right now? Tell me about your partner, right? Not make, you know, and create a welcoming and inclusive space where adolescents feel like they can talk about things like gender identity and sexual orientation um, and who their partner is and what their relationship's like without feeling fear of being judged or stigmatized for who they are or who they might be dating. So I think that's really important. And also bringing it sort of not normalizing dating violence in a, like a good way, but normalizing it in terms of this is something that happens to a lot of people. So a lot of people have some not so great experiences in relationships, like with their partner telling them what to do or saying not nice things to them. Has anything like that ever happened to you? And then just asking open-ended questions like, tell me more about that. So just screening for, you know, like, is anybody hurting you? Is anybody in your life doing things that you don't like or make you feel scared is really important. And especially in OBGYN, when it can also create a conversation about, well, what are your options for contraception in the context of this relationship, right? Like the example of the adolescent girl you mentioned earlier, who maybe an IUD isn't the best option for her. And that would have been great for you as her provider to know that she was in a potentially unhealthy relationship or a potentially violent or coercive relationship. So you could help her explore those options. And, you know, just telling people to use condoms is not going to work if you have a partner who refuses to use condoms and they're 10 years older than you, right? So I think prevention and screening is so important. So just asking everybody who comes through your office, tell me about your relationship, what's going on there? And recognizing also that for minors, 
Sometimes it is important to break confidentiality if somebody is in an unsafe situation and tell their parents or caregivers so that they can get help and also connect them with resources. Well, I believe what you just told us is what healthcare providers must do to be able to provide culturally sensitive and developmentally appropriate care for patients at risk that we come across our path and that we think might be at risk, or they've told us something that should help us go explore further for sure. at risk for dating violence. So just, just if you were going to summarize what you were going to tell healthcare providers that take care of young girls, women, and that ranges from OBGYNs. I work with midwives, physician assistants, you know, nurse practitioners. You know, if you were going to summarize how we can be very culturally sensitive in not missing people at risk for for this, what would you say? I would say don't make assumptions about any individual patient based on, you know, your perceptions of their identity or, you know, how things might appear on the surface. I would say ask everybody. Ask everybody, how's your relationship going? Are you dating somebody? And how's that going? How was your most recent relationship? Just asking those open-ended questions, and then not being afraid to also address the topic of dating violence head on, right? Like just as you, as you know, an adolescent OBGYN, I'm sure are not afraid to address topics that some people might consider sensitive or controversial, like condoms or birth control head on, do the same thing with dating violence. Say, you know, a lot of people talk about how sometimes their relationships aren't so great. It sounds like you have you know, you're really happy that you've met somebody and things are going well, but sometimes things aren't so great. You know, sometimes people can be controlling or checking up on you too much, or sometimes relationships can even get violent. And that's not uncommon for people your age. Is that something you've experienced? And then trying to get back to those, that was not a good example of an open-ended question, but (laughs) trying to get back to those open-ended questions, like, tell me how you and your partner solve problems together. Or when you talk about, birth control and your choices about sex, what do you talk about, right? And you can get a little bit of an understanding about the relationship and the power dynamics there. And if you, sometimes partners come to visit. So if you see something that doesn't look super healthy, say something, right? And, you know, encourage patients to have autonomy and have, you know, their partner step out of the room and have private conversations with them as well and provide everybody with resources. I think that's like the quickest, easiest thing is that, I know a lot of doctor's offices I go to in the bathroom, they'll have a poster on the back of the door that's like, hey, you know, are you experiencing any of these things in your relationship? That's not okay. And you can get help and you can call this number. So in case folks are afraid to share, they're not ready to share that information with a provider, they at least can write that number down or scan a QR code on a flyer to get resources while they're in the private space of the bathroom. So I love it when people do that in bathroom stalls. You know, so what does the future hold in this area of study? I mean, what intervention initiatives are in the works in in this area of study that you've written this powerful paper on? So something that I'm working on right now is I have a grant from the National Institutes of Health to adapt DateSmart, the um, intervention I mentioned earlier for adolescent girls who'd been involved in dating violence. I'm adapting that along with Dr. Rizzo and some other colleagues, Dr. Dorita Frierson, who's at Seton Hall University, 
we are adapting Date Smart, which is a six session plus one booster session prevention program for adolescent girls to prevent sexual risk behaviors, consequences like HIV, and to prevent dating violence. We're adapting that for young moms. And to do that, we're starting with young moms themselves. So I'm a big believer in um, community based research and asking the experts. And the experts are in this situation, the young moms themselves. So we're doing focus groups right now where we're asking them how we can better reach them in the community and engage them in this kind of research and help us adapt this program so that it's more applicable and more fun and more interesting for young moms to learn some skills based on cognitive behavioral therapy, like emotion regulation, anger management, conflict resolution, interpersonal skills like condom negotiation, other communication skills like I was talking about. So we're talking to young moms um, and also other folks who work with them in sort of the community and in healthcare to see how can we better adapt this intervention and make it work for young moms, whether that's going to be in person or online. Obviously, young moms have a lot of barriers to doing things in person beyond pandemic world where we're all used to Zoom now. They also have like transportation and childcare issues and limited financial resources in many cases. So that's one area that I'm really excited about is involving young moms in that research. But in general, I think we need a lot more research that is that starts with adolescents first and is asking them about their experiences and what they think would be helpful. It's, you know, all very well for us as older people to come in and be like, what are you young folks doing on the TikTok, right? But like, <laughs> that's not going to go over very well. And we know it. And so I think having adolescents really be the experts and tell us what their relationships are like, what are the issues they're seeing with their friends. I consult at a school in my free time. And um, we hear all the time from teens who are asking like, I'm worried about my friend. Is this normal? Is this okay? Is this something that we should tell adults about? And if so, what's going to happen? And so like normalizing, asking adults for help and that people aren't getting in trouble, but that, you know, you're there to support them and you're there to help them figure out ways to do things in relationships that are going to be more healthy, I think is really important. And especially with dating violence, because particularly in underserved communities, Calling the police is often not viewed as a viable option, right? For good reason. And so giving people resources that they can reach out to that don't just involve calling the police if they're fearing for their safety or someone else's safety, I think is super important as well. Wow. Wow. Dr. Mary B. Jones, you know, one final question as we round up. This has been so powerful. I want you to, number one, talk about the factor that is most responsible, just in summary, for dating violence in teen girls and teen boys. And I want you to give us a parting advice, you know, just in summarizing what we've been talking about for the past one hour. It's really hard for me to choose one risk factor, but you've mentioned adverse childhood experiences several times. And, you know, as child clinical and pediatric psychologist myself, who has a lot of training in cognitive behavioral therapy, and I try to you know, take the approach with my research on this based on social learning theory, which is that we do what we see. Right. So growing up in a family where the adults around you solved conflicts with each other and with you by using physical violence or using psychological aggression, like yelling and name calling and, you know, like hearing folks express things like that and seeing violence in your home. That is a really, really big risk factor for dating violence and intimate partner violence of all ages. So if there's one big take home message I would say it's trying to stop that 
intergenerational transmission of dating violence by, you know, learning some emotion regulation and coping strategies, which is easier said than done. But, you know, take a deep breath, pause for a second, take a moment to think about how am I going to solve this conflict and who's watching, right? Which is more an advice to adults listening, but, you know, kids are always watching. And if they see conflict being dealt with in their home with violence and controlling behavior, an unkind behavior, then that's something that they're going to repeat in their relationships as well. And it's never too late to learn how to do things a little bit differently, to learn how to find some healthy ways to cope with really strong emotions that we all experience, um, to learn ways to solve conflicts with your partner in an assertive way where your voice is heard, but you're not being aggressive with your partner or you're not being passive with your partner. So that would be my biggest take-home message in terms of risk factors is that all of us do what we see. And so if you can create a healthy environment in your relationships for all the people around you, then that's going to create that positive cycle. And to get more information, do we go, you know, more information about your work? I had access to your work professionally, but for the lay person out there, where can they get more information about dating violence prevention? Sure. So my lab website is www.rowanassert.com. So Rowan, like the university, R-O-W-A-N, and Assert is the name of the lab I co-direct with Dr. DJ Angeloni. It's the Aggression, Substance, and Sexuality Research Team. So it's R-O-W-A-N-A-S-S-E-R-T.com. And for dating violence resources, I recommend the CDC's website and Love is Respect. Org. Um, I also have a Twitter where I tweet about some of these things. It's at Dr. Meredith Joppa. It's my previous name. <laughs> Dr. Meredith C. Jones, I just want to thank you so very much for making the time to come to Coco Pods podcast today. This podcast is where we talk about all the issues that can affect a woman and also a woman in pregnancy with respect to maternal morbidity and mortality and just the young girls and women in general. So thank you so much for your time with us today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. 